as I was mentioning, when I heard that uh, that, that Diamond had stopped, stopped distributing, they've started again, but I, uh, I, I damn near passed out. I said, life as I know it has ended. And uh, if you're from the Chicago area, you know Graham Crackers. They got 10 locations there and one in Milwaukee and one in Temecula, California. Yeah, right on the uh, San Diego County line. And the manager of the Loop store is Earl Geyer. And I, I loved the blurb about him. Usually I, I don't read verbatim, but this is this is too good. Earl Geyer thinks Spider-Man has been a clone since Steve Ditko left the title. And everything after 1968 is new books. He's been reading for almost as long as any of us and has forgotten more about comics history than you'll ever know, having spent a spell illustrating RPG games like Battletech and Call of the Sithaloo. He and his staff at Graham Crackers, Junior Rangers, are trying to squeeze as much product as possible into the store and help customers finding what they want. Stop by. That's, that's in the loop. So, you definitely stop by, but in the meantime, you're about to meet Earl Geyer. Earl, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Hello. Yes. Are you there? I am here. Are you there? Okay, say yes. Thank you for having me, Raleigh. Oh yeah, no, I'm delighted. Now I have to have to ask about this because, of course, Steve Ditko left, and I I believe that's because uh, Stan Lee claimed that he developed the character and and all that. But what I was curious about, Steve didn't die till a couple of years ago. What was he doing after he left Spider Man? He did uh, work for a number of different companies. He did do works for DC. Um, and and then he also did his own personal work, which uh, he was a big believer in, and ran yeah. in objectivism. And uh, he did, published a number of books through a gentleman named Robin Snyder, Snyder with a Y, and I believe he still sells those online. Wow. All right. I knew about the objectivism thing. My, my husband, who knows more about comics than I will ever know, and probably more than most people, I think he's got over 100,000 of them. But uh, when we were talking about it, you know, he knew everything about Steve. And then he said, what's objectivism? I said, oh, that's Ayn Rand. I know that one. So, uh, so ab- absolutely. But uh, th- there's so many places I want to go with this, Earl. But 100 years ago, of course, there, there weren't any comics per se. Newspapers had them. And how did comics leap from newspapers into their own format? I don't know if it was Max Gaines who took the uh, Max Gaines usually gets the credit for realizing there was a market. Uh, there had been books and, like, promotional books collecting comics over the years, uh, but nothing regularly published. And he had been involved in doing a promotional book, and they had a stack that was left over, the story goes. And he looked at it and said, I wonder, put 10-cent price stickers on, put them uh, at a couple of newsstands. There was always a newsstand in the building, and I guess a couple of others. And he went home that night. He came back the next day. They had all been sold. And that's kind of where it started. Uh, um, Newspaper presses lose money if they're not printing something every minute. And they realized, hey, we could, you know, you off hours print comic books and make more money, and that's what they did. Now, we think of the first big character, at least I do, the really big character in the 30s of being Superman, but what was the first original comic? I believe it was, it wasn't Famous Funnies, that was reprints. Uh, there, was, there was nothing big, basically, as the different companies tried to get the rights to the comic strips that had been published in the papers. 
somebody realized, oh, we've got out-of-work artists. This is the Depression. Why don't we just do our own? And they would do knockoffs and that. There were a number of different attempts, but no character uh, has ever really hung on until Superman. Yeah, boy, I'll say hung on. And, of course, uh, Max died. He was fairly young in the 40s. And I love the way uh, EC was educational comics because, of course, what came later, I, I kind of laugh at that, that name. And then his, his son, William Bill, you know, took over. And, I mean, some of my favorite stuff was all that ghoulish stuff. You know, it was uh, really popular. It was ghouls, demons, murderers. You, you know them all, I'm sure. Uh, and, uh, you know... The only place to buy them still was on newsstands and all that kind of stuff. And uh, then here's the Red Scare, and all oh, children are reading this, and Congress has to get involved. Tell me about the creation of the Comic Code. Oh, yeah. Well, that's, uh, again, delinquency was on the rise, and television wasn't enough available to be blamed for it at the time. Uh, movies caught some of it. Uh, but comics uh, caught a good deal of it because comics were being aimed at the former soldiers uh, who had been reading comics during World War II. It was easy reading. You could pick it up, put it down. And so they were giving them stories while there were a number of good humor books uh, and uh, light titles. They wanted a little something with an edge, crime and horror. And a number of people made careers out of blaming comics. The most famous is Dr. Wortham, Frederick Wortham. And his book has been torn apart for its poor logic. And there is even supposed to be a book in the works saying that he faked a lot of his research as far as it went. But it was enough to make people go, hey, let's burn comics. And the Comics Code came about as a self-protective measure by the companies. Well, it, it worked. At first, though, of course, it, it took really exciting stuff and turned it into, like, Little Lotta and Dot and Richie Rich, all that lukewarm stuff all of a sudden. And I guess that really didn't change until... Stan Lee chained Atlas to Marvel and Fantastic Four. Uh, would you think that was a turning point going back? Uh, well, it's, DC started bringing superheroes back in the mid-50s, and because many of the young readers had heard their dad talking about The Flash, who was the first one to come back in that, there was an automatic interest, and he was a little more streamlined uh, than the original. Um, the next big push was when Stan Lee edited, uh, he was editing all along since the 40s, Marvel Comics, but kind of decided uh, to do something he would enjoy reading more than just, uh, they had been doing a lot of like pseudo-monster comics at that time. Uh, Groot, who became famous later on in the movie, was a, a giant tree from outer space that came to take over the world, and they ended up throwing termites on him to to defeat him. Um, But that was what they were doing. But they decided, let's have people, you know, the little disagreement among each other in a group. Um, And it kind of started from there. And he he had two talented 
co-creators in Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, yeah. both of whom were capable of tossing out ideas uh, as well. So it was a, a magic time, you could call it, while it lasted. Yes, it was. And uh, the Marvel Universe, Hulk, Iron Man, Thor, Ant-Man, Daredevil, all that. And that really went on through the 60s. And uh, then I guess in the first part of the 70s, Stan Lee left. And we'll, uh, we'll pick it up right there. I'm talking with Earl Geyer. If you are a comic fan, you know, if you're a geek like us, and have any questions or want to chime in, we'd love to hear from you. 312-981-7200 is the phone number. I'm Raleigh James. I'm filling in for G, and this is WGN Radio. Walking the blues. Walking the blues. Cause this is it, boy. Now I think I'm gonna relax myself. Walking the Blues. On the label, it says Jack Dupree and Mr. Bear. Of course, champion Jack Dupree got to number five on the R&B charts. It was on King in 1955. Didn't chart pop. What a shock. Jack was from New Orleans. He was born there in 1910, and tomorrow would have been his 110th birthday. Mr. Bear, by the way, was Theodore McRae. Jack was quite the character. He was orphaned at eight and sent to live in a home for delinquent boys, which actually was very fortuitous because that's where he ran into Louis Armstrong, who had been arrested as a dangerous and suspicious character as a child. He got the handle champion after being a boxer, I think, with Joe Lewis, who suggested that in Annapolis. But he won the Golden Gloves and a bunch of other championships and never gave up the name. From thence on, champion Jack Dupree. He lived in Chicago a couple times. Bill Big Brunzi and Tampa Red introduced him to Lester Melrose, which started his recording career. Lester, of course, uh, got all the... Uh, Writing royalties. Uh, yeah, stories there, too, that we'll save for another time. All right, I'm Raleigh James, and I am in for G, who is taking the night off. And then next week is her final week doing this show, because she's moving to News Nation, which debuts on September 1st. And you can find out more about that at WGNAmerica.com. I'm aided and abetted by producer Casera. She'll probably be screening your calls as well. And engineer Brett. And they get the heavy lifting. I just get to sit here and play my favorite R&B oldies and talk about things I like, which brings us back to Earl Geyer, who is the manager of the Loop Store for Graham Crackers. And you can check out GrahamCrackers.com as well. And so, Earl, we're talking here about uh, about Marvel. And I guess it got sold to Curtis in 1970, and then Stan became publisher, and Roy Thomas became editor. And by the mid-70s, they were going broke. What happened? 
Um, well, for the most part, they, they were still doing all right in the 70s, but as the corporation, oh, later on they tried to get into trading cards and uh, toys, you know, to buy their own companies and that, and it, it didn't work. Uh, I know Toy Biz ended up buying them at one point. Uh, the comics did all right through the through the 70s, uh, for Marvel, anyways, DC was still trying to figure out uh, how to do modern comics. Uh, yeah. They had their hits, but yeah, nothing like Marvel. Yeah, well, with that in mind, I guess it was 77 that Roy Thomas negotiated the rights to an unknown movie. No one heard of it. Uh, Star Wars, of course. And uh, to some extent, that really propelled Marvel for a while, I think. That was that was a big thing to get that, yeah, because everybody. It's the same thing uh, with the paperback. Uh, one woman pushed for the paperback, and she, you know, she just thought if they get half of this book on the movie screen, it's going to be a big hit, and they got more than a half of the book, and it was a big hit. And the comics too. It uh, was one of the first comics to be actively reprinted and printed in a number of forms, uh, and people couldn't get enough of it. Also in the 70s, that's about the time that I remember no longer going to newsstands. Because in the 60s, the 50s, you're always going to the newsstands. It's the only place, you know, you buy news of the world and it's next to whatever newspapers and here's the comic section. Well, suddenly by the 70s, there, there's actual comic stores. Now, was it like a demand for back issues for Golden Age and Civil Age, Silver Age? Or what led the idea of the independent comic store to being... Yeah, there had been stores selling like comics, older comics at premium prices. I thought it was the mid '60s, but one of the older fans told me that in the late '50s, Golden Age comics were twenty-five cents and fifty cents at yeah. uh, stores on Clark Street, and gradually, then there were stores uh, by the '70s. Uh, uh, one uh, local uh, guy who is now no longer with us, Joe Sarno started in his basement, he would open it every Saturday, and you could come buy old comics and, you know, meet other fans. And basically, when there was, I, as far as I know, the, the, the one that really gave it the push was when DC decided to revive Captain Marvel, who they had basically sued out of existence and gotten the rights for. And different dealers who had these back-issue shops went down to the distributor and said, we'll buy your books right now. Don't bother distributing them. And so they were selling them in the stores. And it kind of started from there. Uh, and then a fan in New York, I believe it's uh, Phil Sealing, who ended up uh, coming up with the distribution system for new comics. And that's what made it... Uh, the comic stores didn't take over for newsstands at that point, but... For comic collectors, you could go there. They wouldn't have been mangled by somebody shoving them up on the rack. They were taken care of. Yeah, yeah. Well, and of course, you mentioned distributors, and that's sort of the sort of the magic word because uh, I guess there were a lot of them originally. But at some point, Diamond became the only game in town. Is that because they ate everybody else up? In part, uh, a number of them jumped too far. In around 1995, when all the death of Superman 
and people were buying every comic thinking they'd be able to put their kids through school. <laughs> and like baseball cards and sports cards, it kind of collapsed. And that left a number of them out. And uh, Diamond became the, the last man standing, as it were. Was it a shock to you when Diamond announced during the pandemic that they were going to stop distributing? Not really. I mean, it was a blessing because if they said, you've ordered these comics, we're going to send them, we want money. But nobody, you know, other than a few mail order places, you know, there are a few that do nothing but mail order. Sure. Nobody else would have any money coming in. Um, So it was a blessing that they did that. Uh, But yes, it was like the first time since the mid-30s there were no new comics coming out. Right, and then I guess it's I guess it's DC who decided they're going to go out on their own. Yeah, they've got the well, they've got a distribution system that, as far as I know, only does DC at the moment. Mm-hmm. Whether or not uh, Diamond, to an extent, tried to be fair enough to be never accused of being monopoly, but there are enough people who are kind of unhappy sometimes. And I don't think people will be too sad if there's like a second choice to keep everybody honest as far as it goes. You know, it's interesting. When I think back to being a kid, comics were a dime. And then after a while, they went to 12 cents. And all of this was kind of lunch money affordable. And you look at it now and... You know, if you want to buy every new title on the rack each month, you can't do that unless you have hundreds of dollars to spend. I mean, this is this is no longer throwaway money. So the first question is, how many kids are coming in and reading comics? We don't get a lot of kids downtown, but we're not typical. Uh, most of our, many of our people are either work downtown or some live downtown. Uh, and there are some younger kids, uh, we get some young kids who really know their history of comics, uh, you know, sometimes. Um, we have stores in the neighborhoods, but again, for many of them, uh, certainly in the suburbs, you have to drive to get there. Um, there's kids who want to read comics, but for many kids, it's not as exciting as the newest video game. It doesn't move. You have to read it, which... I shudder sometimes at how reading is taught in schools where it's functional, but you ask a kid, do you enjoy reading? And they'll say enjoy and not know you know, what you mean. And comics is a part of that. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because uh, talking over the last few decades about that and the dearth of reading, at the same time, uh, when Harry Potter came out, suddenly kids were reading, and uh, books no less, uh, print. So uh, do you think we're going to hit a time when maybe somebody in the comic world, maybe it'll be a graphic novel, we'll talk a little about those, but where, where they'll come up with something that will be that type of a zeitgeist where everybody, every kid on the block has to read it? It's hard to say because, like you said about uh, newsstands, I can remember begging while waiting for a bus and seeing a comic. Oh, I need it, I need it. I mean, my parents buying it to shut me up. And you can no longer casually see it on every couple of corners. So you have to go out and get it. And it's possible, again, Harry Potter before that, Goosebumps, there were a few things that kids wanted to read, but many of those, I believe, Goosebumps was just 
it through schools. Uh, Scholastic Press used to be one that would sell, do books for kids in schools and that. We do get teachers who, who go for comics, whereas they used to hate it. Now anything you can do to get the kids reading uh, is fine with them. But as a, unless somebody does something where it's distributed through the schools, um, I don't know that you'll ever be able to get that kind of, everybody wants it, everybody's got to read it. It's possible, but, you know, who knows? Yeah, it'd be interesting to see. Most, statistically speaking anyway, most comic book stores fail. Maybe they last 10, 15 years, but most of them aren't like Mile High Comics or Lone Star Comics or even Graham Crackers. Uh, why is that? I, in part, unfortunately, you have to think of it as a business as well as, you know, fun. Most people in the stores like comics, but uh, as one uh, comic retailer told me years ago, he likes stuff other than Marvel and DC, but those are the ones that, that pay the bills. Right. And you, you also can't just buy what you love and hope people come in to get it. And now a lot of people don't, don't think business when they need to. And certainly in this pandemic, that's what we're doing now. One of the things that you see, you know, you mentioned before about people uh, buying comics, thinking it'll be their uh, their children's college fund or what have you. And yes, there was a, there was a point when it really really jumped, and and still some of these comics, as you know, are very very pricey. But when a store is competing now with eBay and everything else, how hard is it to deal in pricey back issues and really be able to move them? It's not that hard because a lot of people want to see it. Uh, eBay is pretty good about protecting you and all that, but you can actually see. You, you say the book is in very good condition. Well, there's a lot that can go into making it this condition, that condition, uh, and uh, just seeing scans on eBay is hard. And also people still like to pick it up, and as I used to do, carry it home and you know, put your... With, with ceremony, place it with the other books <laughs> in the collection. Uh, uh, we used to do that quite a bit, me and my friend. So it's, so it's still, it, it does give eBay, in some cases, I would think, brought prices down when you realize there's more of them out there than you thought. On the other hand, in some cases, you find a book is rarer that it just doesn't turn up, and uh, it's more expensive than... Uh, than you might have thought otherwise. We also now, as soon as big bucks were involved, we uh, we saw a situation where the the idea of the graded comics came up. And I look at that, and it seems to me so arbitrary. Like, you can say, if you send in the same book three times, you might get three different grades. How do you feel about this? Well, that, that is true. Uh, that has been done by people, I, I know... Uh, our main owner, Jamie Graham, has, you know, gotten a grade that he didn't agree with, took it out of the the, the, the plastic and sent it back and got a better grade. Um, it is, uh, Overstreet Guide did do a, a guidebook on grading comics where there was like a hundred point system mm-hmm. and there were pages done in different shades of yellowing and browning so you could hold it up against your book and tell. But it is still 
Uh, again, that's the, the nice thing about being able to see it. Right. The good thing about grading is that once it's graded, I don't know if anybody knows yet what's happening inside the uh, the, the grading. Is it yellowing more or not? Uh, they say not. Uh, but once it's done, then you don't have to worry. How's it going to look when I want to turn it on and sell it? It's still a, a 9.2 as far as anybody's right. concerned. Yeah. Right. That that's the that's the good point. The the frustration is just the arbitrary nature of uh, of someone's opinion. So uh, I see I can see both sides of that. I mentioned the high failure rate of stores. Now on the other hand, Graham Crackers now has twelve stores. When did Graham Crackers start? Graham Crackers it was uh, in eighty or eighty one out in Naperville where they still have the largest store, uh-huh. and uh, the twelve stores plus there's a website which is separate as well. And uh, there have been a couple of stores that uh, closed. There was uh, one store that I managed that closed because they opened a second one in Plainfield near where the Naperville was, and we were in between in Bolingbrook. So mm-hmm. they closed that one, but then later opened one on the north side that I managed. Um, but they, by and large, the stores have been uh, have managed as far as it went. You, you look carefully. We, we, are, is there competition near, you know, and uh, is there anything, a college, a school, something that might draw people? So they look at a number of things. And I can understand the expansion to Milwaukee, but when you get to Temecula, there must be a story there. Why Temecula? Um, there was a store out there that was being sold, and our main owner, Jamie Graham, retired out in California. Oh, okay. So he's, uh, I guess, uh, somewhat involved in the store uh, out there. He lives somewhere out there. I don't know where. Yeah. But that's why that's why they, they went there. I figured. And, I yeah. figured. Yeah, there yeah. must have been. What, uh, in terms of, uh, and not, not just the Loop store, but in general, what's the median age of the person who walks into a comic store and, uh, and is, is looking to buy? I, I've never sat down and figured it. There's a lot of people like in your late 20s, early 30s. We've got a couple of people who are older than even me. Uh, and again, we get kids who I just got out of high school. There's, you know, again, we used to get a lot from the art schools and the, the colleges downtown. And uh, But a lot of it is people who've been reading for a number of years or coming back to it after a number of years. Uh, you know, so, yeah, late 20s too, you know, 30s, 40s, I don't ask the age. Well, you know, that that's actually encouraging, because I, I was figuring that it would be 50s and 60s. So that's uh, that's an encouraging thought. We're talking with Earl Geyer, who is the manager of the Loop Store for Graham Crackers, and we're talking all things comics. And you are welcome to join the discussion, if this floats your boat in any way whatsoever. And Earl is pretty much an expert at this, so if you've got those lingering questions, he's the guy to talk to. So call me. 312-981-7200. I'm Raleigh James. I'm filling in for G on WGN Radio. Life could be a dream. Life could be a dream. Do, 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 Life could be a dream. Yeah. 
Shaboom. If I could take you up in paradise up above. Shaboom. If you would tell me I'm the only one that you love, life would be a dream. Sweetheart, hello, hello again. Shaboom. And open with me to get boom. Then on the ding dong, the lang, the lang, the lang. Oh, 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 pip. A bebadobadib. Oh, life could be a dream. If only all my precious plans would come true. If you would let me spend my whole life loving you, life would be a dream, sweetheart. Every time I look at you, something is all Yeah, that's the chords, the original Shaboom. You always hear about how the crew cuts did a wimpy white cover of the chords hit and you know just eclipsed it. That's true, but the chords didn't really get recognition for how well they did with that record. That was number two on the R&B charts. It was a top five pop record. And that's a year before the Billboard Hot 100 debuted, so pop standards were dominating at this time, and it made it to number five, and that's the chords, not the crew cuts. They're from the Bronx, the Feaster Brothers, with Jimmy Keys and Floyd McRae and William Edwards and uh, Rupert Banker play piano. But some consider that the first rock and roll record, and this is a big debate. In fact, Steve Probst and Jim Dawson even wrote a book nominating 50 choices for what was the first rock and roll record. And, of course, the term rock and roll as it applied to music as opposed to the original meaning uh, came from billy ward and the domino 60 minute man in 1951 and alan freed co-opted that and said it's a rock and roll record well that's a term but a pure rock and roll record what is it now i lean toward g by the crows in 1953 but shaboom in 54 is a worthy contender it was on cat which is a subsidiary of Atlantic. Jerry Wexler didn't even like the song, and that's a, that's another story. I'm Raleigh James. I am filling in for G, who is off tonight, and then next week is her final night, final week doing this show. Then she will uh, get ready to debut with News Nation, which is going to debut September 1st. So next week is your last and final G week, and I know you'll want to want to check that out. Uh, I thank producer Casera for uh, for handling everything, and engineer Brett for keeping keeping me on the air, and I get the easy part. I just get to play R&B oldies and talk about stuff I like, which at this moment is comics. And we're talking with Earl Geyer, and he is the manager of the Loop Store of Graham Crackers. And uh, so, Earl, one thing we really didn't talk much about yet is the advent of the graphic novel. Now, I think I thought that the adaptation of Alien was the first big one, but I could be wrong. You know, Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson and all that. But what was the first big graphic novel? Oh, and that's like what's the first rock and roll record? Oh, good. Oh, good. Um, what is it? Rockwell was it? Rockwell Kent did uh, some woodcut books that were stories, silent stories, uh-huh. and I believe the thirties. A cartoonist named Milt Gross did something like a takeoff on that uh, a pantomime novel called He'd Done Her Wrong mm-hmm. in the 30s. So it's, it's, you really get iffy as what was the first one that wasn't like a collection. Right. Um, you know, as far as that goes, uh, 
Yeah, again, you know, like I say, you, you get people arguing. That's uh, there's no easy answer. Will Eisner, who had been in comics before Superman, right, in his later career, did a number of personal works, and the the first one was one of the first things to appear. Uh, contract with God. Uh, yeah, the. Uh, the alien adaptation, although I believe that was serialized in heavy metal first, mm-hmm. but that was the first movie adaptation that wasn't shoved into 22 pages uh, or so. They took their time and did had more cooperation and, and did a better book than many others were able to. So it's it's hard to say. <laughs> Well, I, I know one of the, well, when I say early, of the modern era of this, certainly not going way back, but Red Tide by Jim Steranko, and uh, I I always thought about that. But the thing about graphic novels that I wonder about is how creators fare with them, because there are so many reprints, and, uh, you know, they wind up not getting anything for any of that. So how do the artists feel about graphic novels? Yeah, well, uh, number one, the... As far as I know, everybody gets something for the reprints nowadays. They don't have any rights, but that there is something given to them. I could be wrong when it comes to the big companies. Um, Basically, there's a a move now to do more original graphic novels rather than try to bring out uh, a comic which is iffy because when the comic comes out, you get buzz. Hey, this is really good. You know, have you, have you read that or whatever? And somebody else might say, well, I'll wait for the book. But they'll be waiting for it as opposed to needing to read reviewers uh, who can be a mixed bag. Um, but again, if you're doing your own book, you kind of like it. It's probably less interference from a comic company. And again, there are some smaller companies that are really good at working with their creators uh, more than Marvel and DC. Um, so it's going to be kind of hit or miss. Uh, the ideal thing is you make your name or, you know, doing Batman or Spider-Man, and then once you have a name, you can go do your own story by the, by the artist or writer of such and such, and it gets people's attention. Yeah. We got Dennis from Golden, Colorado. Welcome to WGN Radio, Dennis. Welcome to the Big 720. So good to hear you on here. I enjoyed your shows so much um, last month. Um, So much so I had to replay them in order to get the full gist of it. I always enjoy your perspective on the American experience and Americana, and you know how to make a subject I've never been too tuned into interesting. This historical background makes it interesting. Oh, well, good, good. So you weren't a comic collector as a kid? I was not. Um, I I only had a passive interest. I never watched much television, and I didn't read many comics. You know, when when, when I spent all my time with nonfiction, there's so much in life and in this whole world that keeps me entertained in nonfiction, I never found the time for fiction. But listening to you guys discuss the history and... What's behind the comics is kind of fascinating. Well, I'm so glad you called. Thank you, Dennis. You're welcome. All right, so, Earl. Nowadays, there are many people who do stories about their life. Sometimes it's personal. 
Sometimes it's people who live in the Middle East. So there is a lot of nonfiction uh, out there now as far as uh, people's yeah. lives. So, so there's, if you've got a good comic store, go poke around sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the, uh, I think about the last real blockbuster character, the household word that everybody knew, even if they never read a comic. And I, I, I don't know of anybody since Spider-Man in 63. You know, you've got a lot of people like Harley Quinn, of course, but that's sort of within the comic world. But has there been anybody since Spider-Man that was that huge a name? Oh, boy. Um, again, if they're known now, it's because of a TV or movie uh, program. Okay. Uh, Deadpool was a character who people liked. Uh, nobody outside comics really knew him at all, and then they did the movie, and he exploded. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy were, you'd say, like bench warmers at Marvel Comics. And then they did the movie with new characters are reusing other characters in there. Now they're known. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't really know if there's been uh, you know a number of characters came after Spider-Man, yeah. Daredevil, uh, Black Panthers, things like that. Right. But Spider-Man right. was really the one at the time to catch the attention uh, between his problems, his and May his love life, uh, and it, it really wrapped it all up. So right now, this week, at Graham Crackers, what's the hottest seller? Oh, boy. Well, the hottest thing was that the creators of uh, Walking Dead did a special comic, which they gave the comic stores free, called Negan oh. Lives. And it's a, a story about Negan. And so that is... Uh, uh, it was the hot thing. Uh, I've been off for two days. Uh, I'm, I'm there on the weekends. Uh, so whether anything else shot up, I don't know. But that was certainly something that caught people's attention. Earl, it's been a delight. Thank you for spending the hour with me. And hopefully everyone in Chicago will head on down to the loop to Graham Crackers. I appreciate your time. Okay, thank you for having me.